The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to our number one of Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 19th day of November in the year 2023, which is getting kind of weak in the knees. We're getting ready for the new year. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way running the board at the helm for us. And I'd like to start off by wishing a very happy Thanksgiving to everybody. We have got a great show lined up for you tonight. As always, leading off, we will welcome in the great sportscaster from the New England area, Dale Arnold. He's just authored a new book titled Tough Guys, and that's about the enforcers of hockey, and I guess you guys are just as interested in that as I am, so we'll have a nice chat with Dale about that. In the second half, we will switch gears, as we do from time to time, and we'll start getting some holiday cheer by bringing in the great Mark Volman. He of Flo and Eddie, and he of everybody's favorite band, the Turtles. So sit back and relax, get comfortable, enjoy the show tonight on GBB. We've got some great people, some great stories up ahead. Just like to touch on social media quickly before we begin. Facebook. I am out on Facebook. My page is titled The Talk of New York Sports. You'll find so much there, sports information, show information, weird stuff. Anything that, that will pique your interest will be on my page. You can also follow us uh, WGBB at Sports Talk New York. You can follow me on X at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry because the next day they're out on the website. You can listen to them and catch up anytime at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he's hosted Boston Bruins television broadcasts on NESN as well as the Daily Dale and Holly with Keith show on WEEI Radio. That was until his retirement this year. He's the only person who has done play-by-play broadcasts for all five of the Boston area's major professional sports franchises. He is the author of If These Walls Could Talk, The Boston Bruins, and the co-author of Sean Thornton's book, Fighting My Way to the Top, another triumph, great uh, title from those guys. Uh, his latest is titled Tough Guys, Hockey's Enforcers, on wild brawls, high stakes, and the code that binds them. I'm very happy to welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight, Dale Arnold. Dale, good evening. Hi, Bill. How are you? Doing fine, doing fine. I hope everything's well up in the New England area with you, Dale. Now, uh, you are renowned, really. I talked to a buddy of mine from Massachusetts, and uh, he recognized you right away. For you, you're renowned for your coverage of all sports, as I touched on in the intro, but most notably hockey. And uh, give the folks uh, on Long Island here just a, nut, a nutshell uh, of your resume. Well, I've been very lucky and very blessed. Uh, out of college, I worked in the American Hockey League uh, for a team called the Maine Mariners. Mm-hmm. For seven years, 
graduated from there to the New Jersey Devils, was there for a couple of years, uh, got an opportunity to go back to Boston uh, and follow Kurt Gowdy as the radio voice of the New England Patriots. Uh, three seasons of doing Patriots led me to the Bruins and Sports Talk Radio. Uh, I did play-by-play for the Bruins for 12 years. Um, I hosted the, the games on TV for 11 years. And in between, got to do some fill-in stuff for the Red Sox and the Celtics, did a season of New England Revolution, and retired this past May when the, the Bruins lost in the seventh game to the Florida Panthers. Oh, outstanding. Yeah, you have done a lot of work, Dale, through your, through your career. It's a very nice, very nice uh, resume that you put together. Now, I, I thought your book would be of interest to my audience. Um, uh, the tough guys really get as much ink as the 30-goal scorers, really. And, and as we say, nobody goes for popcorn when a fight erupts. So why this book and why now? Uh, uh, Triumph Books, who published my first two, were very gracious and said, listen, you tell us what you want to write about and we'll publish it. And I I had, throughout the course of my career, going back to my minor league days, been infatuated with enforcers and guys who made a living the way these guys did. Um, That helped lead me to co-writing Sean Thornton's book with him. And after we did the the book together, I thought, you know, I know a bunch of these other guys who I – I think would have tales to tell and stories that would be interesting. And uh, I started reaching out to them one by one by one, and they all graciously accepted my invitation. So what I basically did was wrote a chapter about each of the different guys and 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 tried to let them tell their stories. Now I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that uh, my feelings didn't change over the course of the year, year and a half that I worked on the book. Uh, I've always been a, a huge advocate for fighting in hockey. And when I was doing play-by-play, I loved calling fights in hockey, both both in the minor leagues and and at the NHL level. Well, but I don't think I understood the toll it was taking on these guys until I started talking to them. Interesting, yeah, very interesting. There, it's really the only sport, Dale, that allows fighting uh, as a regular occurrence on the rink. I mean, you have to go to UFC or to boxing to find another sport where guys are punching it out. <laughs> yeah, where you go sit down for five minutes and you're allowed to, to come back out. And if you if you wish, uh, you can resume the festivity. Exactly. You can start all over again if you want. <laughs> right. Now, you, you hit a third one, you got to go. I, I mean, three fights in a game. But, I mean, let's be honest, nobody has three fights in a game anymore. And fighting in general, is down pretty dramatically in professional hockey. Uh, you know, there are junior leagues in Canada which have now banned fighting and said, you know, if you fight, you're immediately expelled from the game and suspended on top of that. I don't know if that will ever reach all the way up to the NHL level or not, but fighting is certainly not what it used to be back in the days. My first year uh, in the minor leagues was 1979-80, and those were the days of bench-clearing brawls on a regular basis and and, you know, fights all over the ice on a regular basis. You, you don't see anything like that in this day and age. No, you don't. Yeah, we'll touch on bench-clearing balls in a little while, Dale. That, that's mentioned in the book as well. What went into choosing these gentlemen for the Tough Guys book? Well, it started with guys that I knew and had a relationship with and could reach out to and, and talk to them and ask them to participate but as I, as I worked my way through the book and through a lot of the chapters, I felt I had to step out of my comfort zone a little bit, and uh, I, I wanted to reach out to somebody that I didn't know and, frankly, didn't like. 
um, and and I had a, a contact made for me uh, with Matthew Barnaby, and uh, I didn't know him, had never spoken to him until we, we spoke for this book, uh, but I didn't like him, uh, and fans who don't root for the team he plays for probably didn't like him either. And son of a gun, if I didn't end up liking the guy a lot before the the process was over with his chapter, and like all the other tough guys, I ended up thinking, you know, this is a guy I wouldn't mind having on my team too. But all of the other guys in the book were all people that I knew throughout the course of my career, could reach out to and had a relationship with and could expand on, on that relationship as we moved forward. I don't like Matthew Barnaby either, uh, Dale. He stiffed us on uh, an interview when his book was released. Uh, he wrote a book for Triumph as well, and uh, not a word out of him. Uh, called, called his home. Didn't pick up the phone. Don't know what's going on, but I'm not a big fan of that man either. So, so don't worry about it. Now, <laughs> it, there's an interesting story about a guy that I wasn't really familiar with by the name of Bobby Robbins. Well, you're not the only one, and I knew when I wrote the chapter with Bobby that he was going to be the name that very, very few of my readers were ever going to know. Uh-huh. Uh, Bobby Robbins' NHL career lasted three games. When he made the Bruins' opening day roster as a 32-year-old rookie, he was the oldest uh, rookie on an NHL opening day roster in NHL history. Uh, the Bruins played the Philadelphia Flyers in his first game. He knew he was going to fight somebody. He wasn't sure who it was going to be. It ended up being Luke Shen. Uh, he got rocked badly. Mm. But he had spent his entire life trying to get to this level, and he wasn't going to let it end there. So he didn't tell anybody. Played his second game. Probably shouldn't have, given what happened in the first game. Got rocked again. Um, again, didn't tell anybody. Played his third game. Got rocked a third time. Had no chance uh, at, at, not, at hiding it at that point. Uh, went back to Providence of the American Hockey League. But for all intents and purposes, uh, the concussions that he had suffered both previous to his NHL career and then during his brief three-game stint, uh, took their toll. He was never the same player again, is is out of the game completely right now. I knew he had a story to tell, and without giving away too much in the book, um, he tells me flat out about the time that he had the gun in his hand and was thinking about whether or not it was time to end things. Oh, boy. That's how messed yeah. up his brain was. And when we finished talking and, and you know, as, as I disconnected the recorder and I said to him, I said, Bobby, are you sure you want me to write this? And he paused for a second and he said, Dale, it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Write it. And I did. This is uh, just one of the compelling stories folks you'll find in Dale Arnold's new book about the tough guys in hockey. Now, uh, would any of these guys change the, the approach that they've taken to the game if, if, they've, if they were given a chance? Would, would they turn over a new leaf if uh, a second chance came along to them? Bill, you have hit the, the nail on the head with the question I asked every single one of these guys. And all to varying degrees know that they've paid a physical toll for making a living the way they did broken hands, shoulders, elbows, all of those things, pitches that they can't even count, concussions. And every single one of them, when I asked, if you had to do it over again, would you do it differently? And to a man, every single guy said, I knew what I was signing up for. I knew what I was getting paid to do. I wouldn't change anything. Every single guy said, I wouldn't change a thing. 
That is amazing. That, that's uh, something to be said for that. Now, what does it take to be a quote-unquote tough guy, Dale? What, what does it entail? Well, it's certainly different now than it was, you know, back in the day. The, the earliest tough guy that I write about in the book is Terry O'Reilly, who um, if you ask people who played against him will tell you uh, there was nobody tougher, nobody uh, more difficult to play against. And I can tell you based on the 30-some-year relationship that I've had with Terry, there is not a kinder, gentler man that I've ever met. Uh, he is a sweetheart, and everybody who knows him loves him. But when he played, he could flip that switch. And and he, he relished the role. He, he not only was willing to do it, he enjoyed doing it. Now, his number got retired by the Bruins, and I, I remember in the course of the book I said to him, I can only find one other guy who made a living the way you made a living whose number got retired, and that's Clark Gillies uh, of the Islanders. Bring him and he up. stopped me immediately, yeah. and he said, he said, oh, Dale, Clark was a much better player than I was. And I, and I said, yeah, but you're tough guys, and tough guys don't get their numbers retired. But both Clark and Terry O'Reilly got their numbers retired by their respective organizations. Right. I had a talk with the late, great Clark Gillies about uh, some of his experiences in the game. He, he brought up guys like Terry O'Reilly, uh, Ed Hospidor, uh, of course, Schiltz. Uh, but, but I was going to mention Gillies uh, with Terry O'Reilly because they, they do have a past and, uh, it was some of the best uh, fighting, if you want to look that up. It's really a great uh, piece of footage, folks. Uh, Clark Gillies and Terry O'Reilly. And uh, what what does it take, uh, or who do you think the tough guys, Dale, who do they think are the toughest guys? As I was going through uh, a bunch of these guys that I knew and who you know I, I had spoken to for the course of this book, Almost to a man, every single one of them, of course, when they were playing, said, you've got to talk to Dave Brown. And I knew David from when he started his minor league career with the Maine Mariners in the American Hockey League. I've known him for all of the years since the day he started as a rookie in the AHL. And I called him up and we talked. And, and everybody I spoke to said, pound for pound, he might have been as tough as anybody who's played the game. And the beauty of, of writing this book with the people that I wrote it with is that I could get different perspectives. Dave Brown and Chris Nyland were famous, famous for the pregame brawl between the Montreal Canadiens and the Philadelphia Flyers in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And that, it actually was the pregame brawl that ended uh, full ice brawls between teams. It was a mess. Yeah. Uh, even Don Cherry as noted uh, a fight fan as he is, said, I'm embarrassed by this. They've got to do away with this. This thing went on for over 30 minutes before the game, after warm-ups, but before the game. And what I could do was I could get Dave Brown's perspective of what he saw, and I could get Chris Nyland's perspective of what he saw, because they were the two main combatants in the whole brawl, but they could give me their perspectives from their own team's uh, side of the of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason, folks, to pick up Dale Arnold's uh, new book on tough guys. 
Now, we spoke earlier about touching on the bench-clearing brawls. We just spoke about the one with Philadelphia and the Canadians. Mike Milbury uh, said something interesting in the book about bench-clearing brawls. He did, and and this is where Mike and I have had a lot of disagreements over the years and a lot of arguments about things, but this is an area in which we are in complete agreement. Uh, in the minor leagues, especially in the early years of the minor leagues when I was working, as I said, bench-clearing brawls were pretty normal and pretty frequent. And as much as I loved calling fighting in the national or in the American Hockey League and then in the National Hockey League, I didn't like bench-clearing brawls because it was the only time I thought guys could get seriously hurt. Mm-hmm. And I was interested to hear Mike, who had participated in some, basically verify what I had said, and hell, I'm, I'm in a broadcast booth 150 feet away from the ice, and it made me nervous, and he said it was the only time he was afraid on the ice because you just didn't know what was going to happen. Right. You, don't, you can't see guys coming. Uh, you, you, the, the unknown is, is uh, the part that people fear, Dale, I believe. And uh, one thing about the tough guys, does the present – uh, the presence of one of these guys actually help a team win? I don't know if it does anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are two chapters in the book that don't involve tough guys, quote-unquote, because I wanted two different perspectives. Um, one is John Shannon, a uh, well-renowned uh, broadcast legend in Canada, Hockey Night in Canada and things like that, and I wanted the broadcaster's perspective on bench-clearing brawls and how they handled them, how they covered them. The other was Brian Burke, who was a pretty tough guy when he played in the minor leagues, but, you know, had a very short minor league career and was really more in management. But he built a tough team to win a Stanley Cup in Anaheim, and he made an interesting point with me. He said, it's not the same anymore, and the last team that toughed their way to a Stanley Cup championship was probably the St. Louis Blues in 2019 against the Bruins. Mm-hmm. And he said, you really can't do it that way anymore. And, and I don't think you can. You can't, you can't allot a spot on the fourth line for a guy whose only job is to go out and, and tune somebody up when things get out of hand. You've you got to be able to play a little bit. When I wrote Sean Thornton's book, you know, he was that fourth line enforcer type, but he could play. And people knew he could play, and he, he gave a value to the team beyond his fists. Mm-hmm. But in this day and age in, in the National Hockey League, there really isn't a spot for that kind of guy anymore. So there you have it, folks. Uh, Sir Dale's time covering uh, hockey in uh, the New England area, the role of the tough guy has changed through the years. And I was wondering, Dale, do you, do you think, these guys uh, make good coaches, and I know we, we talked about Terry O'Reilly as a coach. Uh, how do you feel about that? Terry O'Reilly was a great coach, mm-hmm. and in fact, Terry Sinden uh, went so far in the book to say that uh, he, he thought Terry was on his way to be one of the best coaches in the NHL. Terry ultimately gave it up because of very legitimate personal family reasons, His son, who has since passed away, was battling some serious physical issues, and Terry felt guilty being away from his son and away from his family so often. And he finally said to Harry, I just, I can't do this anymore. It's not right to you. It's not right to the guys in my dressing room. It's not right to the organization because 
half of my heart and half of my mind is with my son, Evan, who's back home, and he gave it up. He walked away from the game. He was a tough guy who was a legitimate, great, uh, great, too strong a term, very, very good coach. There are other tough guys who have coached to varying degrees of success. Dale Hunter uh, was a coach for a while in the uh, Capitals organization, certainly a tough guy during the course of his career. Archie Henderson, who's in my book, uh, coached at the minor league level, at the international hockey league level, albeit briefly, but, but coached a little bit. Um, it's, it's funny, a guy like O'Reilly, when I talked to some of the guys who played for him, they said the problem was I couldn't be him. I couldn't play with that ferocity. I couldn't play with that abandonment. And it was hard to look him in the eye and tell him I couldn't give him what he gave when he played. And some players found it intimidating to even play for him. Yeah, I can imagine that. That's a very good point, Dale. Dale Arnold with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Uh, guys from from when I was younger, Dale, uh, Tiger Williams, of course I mentioned Clark Gillies, Dave Schultz. Uh, I don't know if you remember a fight between Dave Schultz and a defenseman for the New York Rangers by the name of Dale Rolfe. Uh, it, it was a wicked beatdown. It was one of the, the uh, fights from uh, my younger days in hockey that, that I remember succinctly. And, of course, Dave got his comeuppance when he met Clark Gillies. Um, you, you didn't include too many guys from a couple of years ago. No, because the game has changed so much. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Sean Thornton was one of the, the last guys like that for me. And I had already written a whole book with him. So he was kind enough to write the foreword to my book, but I wasn't going to include him as a chapter in it because I had written literally an entire book with him. But if you think of Bill as it's played today, who are the tough guys you can think of? And, and frankly, when I ask the question, I'll answer it myself. I'm hard-pressed to come up with a bunch of names for you. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah, there, there are – every team used to have a guy who, who was uh, – you'd call him a goon. You could call him uh, a, t a tough guy. But every team had their enforcer. You had Ty Domi on the Rangers, uh, Chris Nyland, as we mentioned. The, the evolution of the tough guy in hockey, uh, where do you see that heading uh, right now, Dale? I think you'll see even less and less. Uh, yeah. As I said, in uh, at least one of the junior leagues in Canada, they've already uh, outlawed fighting. I'm not going to be surprised to see it. And by the way, let me just say this. Mm -hmm. I've always had an issue um, with junior hockey uh, of, of grown 40-, 50-year-old men sitting in stands cheering and screaming for 16- and 17-year-old boys to beat the crap out of each other. So... The fact that they're, they're outlawing fighting at the junior level doesn't bother me as much as it might bother others. Uh, of course, at the major league level, at the NHL, they haven't outlawed it. To the contrary, you're allowed to fight. Uh, they don't have any issues with it. Gary Bettman said recently uh, he doesn't think that there will ever be a, a situation where the NHL will, will outlaw fighting, but they almost don't have to anymore. Yeah, People don't do it. I mean, you know, I... It, it, when I started my minor league career in the American Hockey League, if I did five, six games in a week, I literally saw 30 or 40 fights in a week, <laughs> yeah. literally. And, you know, nowadays, 
if, if you watched the Islanders play for a week, I'd be surprised if you saw two or three fights total. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep, you're exactly right. It, it's uh, evolved to where it doesn't exist anymore almost. I mean, you'd probably see more, more uh, action in baseball. I mean, granted, the guys just dance around and, and chase each other and do silly things, but the, there's probably more bench-clearing activity in baseball now than there is in hockey. And in baseball, as you point out, bench clear baseball, although the excuses, bench clear. Yeah. Uh, but hockey, they're uh, quite, you'll see a bunch of gatherings with Vermont. That, that, it, there are suggest that, you know, do not need it. And that they are advanced having their just truth and value that they that threat of violence, even if they don't actually get the reality of violence. Yeah, uh, exactly true. Uh, their game, I think that the younger guys in college and, and in the minor leagues are, are more proud of the rest of their game than, than uh, getting in a fight with somebody. Yeah, and uh, as I said, over the course of this project, my thoughts on on fighting and and the toll it takes have evolved. Uh, you know, I'd like to think that we're all capable of of gathering new information and, and adjusting our thinking accordingly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm at the stage of my life now where you know I think about these people, well, these players, as people more than anything else. One of the common questions I asked these guys was, if there was a test you could take today that would show if you had CTE, because as you know, Bill, the only way you can test for CTE is post-mortem in, right now. Yeah. But I said, if there was a test you could take today that would tell you whether you had it or not, would you take it? And Chris Nyland, for instance, said to me, I think I would, because they can't fix it. There's nothing they can do to cure it. So I'd be living my life with this ticking time bomb inside of me, wondering what was going to happen. And he said, no, I, I, I wouldn't take the test. But I found it interesting that within the last few weeks, Chris has said that he's going to donate his brain for the, the study of CTE and brain trauma and, and let people study his brain, as people like Junior Seau and others have done before him, to see, you know, what this has done to people. We mentioned Bobby Robbins. There's no doubt in my mind what it has done to him. Now, there are others who will tell you that they don't think they've suffered anything like that. P.J. Stock said to me in, in this book, sometimes he'll wake up in the morning and he'll say to his wife, do I not remember things because I'm just getting old, or do I not remember things because I've taken too many shots to the head? Oh, boy. And sometimes these guys live with that nagging little fear in the back of their mind yeah and uh, it's got to be a big fear too dale that's for sure uh i love the guys out in chicago at triumph uh, and any upcoming projects that we could look forward to dale i'm working on or right now um i'm retired from both radio and television and living in my home up in maine and 
you know, winter's coming, and I don't want to be sitting here staring at the snowbanks all winter long. So I've already started on book number four, which will be similar to the tough guys, chapter per person, but it will be about coaches and, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, the, the coaching profession and how it's approached and, and how you go about it. So uh, book number four is in the works. I don't know when it, it'll be coming out, but uh, I'm working on it, and it, it, it gives me something to fill up my days up here in Maine. Yes, it does. It, it, that's outstanding news. We will look forward to that, Dale. It has been a real pleasure to speak with you tonight. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us out here on Long Island. The book, again, folks, is titled Tough Guys, Hockey's Enforcers on Wild Brawls, High Stakes, and the code that binds them is from Triumph Books. It's available at Barnes & Noble. Wherever you buy your literature, that's where you'll find it. Dale Arnold, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we welcome in the legendary Mark Volman of everybody's favorite band, the Turtles. Stay with us, folks. to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. I'd like to thank you for stopping by and hanging with us on this Sunday evening. Thanksgiving week is upon us. Special time of the year coming up uh Reminder that at 9 o'clock tonight, after you finish listening to us, you can join the movie Eight Men Out on the MLB channel, uh, right after me on the MLB network. Uh, a great movie about the Chicago Black Sox and a uh, r- really great period piece. Um, also, this week, the postseason awards were given out. I hope your team had someone who took home some hardware. And so really begins the hot stove period in baseball. The winter meetings, the Hall of Fame election will be announced on December 3rd. That's the Contemporary Baseball Era uh, Committee with managers, executives, and umpires. Cito Gaston, Davey Johnson, Jim Leyland, Ed Montague, Ed Peters, Lou Pinella, Joe West, and Bill White up for candidates. Uh, who would you see enshrined? We will talk about that some other evening up ahead. Well, our next guest, he is a vocalist, guitarist, and songwriter, best known as a founding member of the 1960s rock band The Turtles, and along with his bandmate and friend Howard Kalin, a member of the 70s rock duo Flo and Eddie. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to him about how uh, that pseudonym got uh, chosen. He uh, really became a standout figure when he joined Frank Zappa's Mothers, and it's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Mark Volman. Mark, good evening. Good evening. Thank you for uh, putting the scores on. 
because I couldn't uh, hang on long enough to find out how all the teams did that I enjoy listening for. Outstanding. Well, I'm glad we could pre- perform that service for you, Mark. Now, er- early on in, in your career, who were your musical influences? Well, I think at that period of time, which for me was probably 1958, 59, going uh, with school, with our, we had a band in school, in high school. Uh, in Los Angeles, and that band would be the band that would uh, become the Turtles. Mm-hmm. And uh, with all of that that was going on, uh, it was a problem with uh, the fact that things going on for us uh, wrapped around school, and that's... Uh, we couldn't really do anything until school ended. I understood. Okay, now, the Turtles actually started, I believe, as a folk rock band. What made you change uh, from being that folk rock band to, to uh, pop and rock? Uh, well, the, the marketplace was kind of setting us up for that. I mean, there. As surfing music, we grew up in the South Bay of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, our band, uh, at that time was known as the Crossfires. And the Crossfires were very popular in our high school and around the community. And, uh, we witnessed by about 1962 that, uh, the Turtles uh, we're beginning to realize that we were going to need to sing a lot more, uh, because the, the marketplace sort of had that going for it in, as a future. And that was where we kind of left the surf music behind us and moved into the pop, uh, rock music of the turtles of that era. Mm-hmm. I, I get you, Mark. Now, there was, there was a songwriting team that you worked with. Gary Bonner, Alan Gordon wrote many of the great Turtles hits, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. Now, now they did a great job because uh, those tunes are immortal, and people have to Google the Turtles and listen to those greatest hits, and you'll hear some great music, some great harmonies, and uh, they were a tremendous act. Now, what sing- signaled the end of the Turtles, Mark? Well, around 1970, uh, as uh, it, it just is a perfect display of the changes of everything that was going on. There was the the Beatles had hit uh, when they came to America, and along with the Beatles came many, many artists who were singing the music of the British invasion. And you had uh, many of the artists which we kind of grew up singing the music of the, you know, 1950s, late 1950s into the middle of the 1960s. And uh, with our high school, we were moving we were thinking of breaking up. We were going to 
uh, D.C. College was looming, and also the Vietnam War was beginning to uh, really have a lot of people concerned about that. And so there was just a some massive amount of changes that were taking place. Uh, as a high school band, we uh, were pretty much calling it a day uh, because we just knew that uh, we had a lot of battles ahead of us, which would include uh, the record business, publishing, marketing, management. There was just so many elements that were making their way into the music business. It was just not singing songs anymore. It was ownership and all of the <laughs> massive changes that people were really uh, sort of being asked to learn. And uh, it was a it was a big change for everything. Complicated times, Mark. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't exactly what we had uh, planned on uh, how we were going to maneuver through it all. Uh, we had problems with management. We ended up having seven managers over a five year span, and each time we made a change into a new manager, we ran right into a wall. Oh. And, it was, and yeah. uh, it was a learning process that people always say, oh, the 60s must have been a, such a wonderful time. <laughs> and it was a wonderful time, all right, but mostly for uh, our old managers who wanted to take all the money. Right, isn't that the way? We're speaking with Mark Volman tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you and Howard, you decided to set out on your own. You become Flo and Eddie. Where, where did the name Flo and Eddie come from? What inspired that? Uh, well, we had two uh, fellows who worked with the band, mostly like a crew. Okay, so they were like uh, doing all of our road stuff and they just really wanted to hang around and drink beer, you know. They didn't. <laughs> yeah. really, they weren't really planning on being in anything serious. And uh, when we uh, decided to break up the band, uh, which at that point in time uh, the turtles uh, were in a problem because a bunch of people were trying to put the kibosh on us by uh, making it a, an issue about who owned the name The Turtles. Oh, boy. And, uh, and that became a lawsuit that uh, would, as I say, take up about seven years of our lives, uh, and it just got worse and worse, and then eventually we... Uh, broke the group up. Uh, when we broke the group up, uh, that's when we sort of fell into some forgiveness with joining Frank Zappa. And uh, we joined Frank in about 1970, 71. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did 12 records with Frank. Um, and uh, those 12 records 
uh, went through things we did with Frank, like live at Carnegie Hall, uh, Billy the Mountain, 200 motels, right. the motion picture, and the the work we did with Frank uh, was really a, a fantastic opportunity to learn how to use our voices and the time we spent working with Frank had to be probably the most uh, audibly some of the most important music uh, of that era and really any time. Yeah, no, gr- great stuff came from you guys being with Frank Zappa. And I want to talk about one one incident, incident in particular uh, for, for the folks that don't know. Mark has a wonderful book out. It's called Happy Forever, and it's it's really uh, you can read a lot more. Some great stories about uh, the turtles, Flo and Eddie, uh, and and where how they become what they did. Now, in J- June of 1971, Mark, John and Yoko, who don't need any any last names, <laughs> everybody knows who we're talking about. They joined yeah. the, the Mothers of Invention on stage at Fillmore East, and it was kind of weird, wasn't it? Well, it was uh, it was John and Frank, really. They, they were really enjoyed each other an awful lot, and given the chance to sing with the other, uh, both, both artists, we, we ended up spending about a week of, re- of rehearsals. Uh, at the Dakotas in uh, New York City, uh-huh. and we would we would go up to uh, John's place, and uh, with Frank, and with uh, me and Howard, um, a few members of the Mothers went with us, and uh, we put together <clears throat> the semblance of a show because Frank really wanted to. Do, uh, as really free form as he could, and and John wanted it to be a little bit more precise and organized, and so he needed to have the rehearsals so he could build with Frank a core uh, musical thing that would take place on that upcoming weekend, and we did uh, two nights at the Fillmore East uh, to put together the music from the album that would be released from from that. And Mm -hmm. actually, uh, there's a a few different ways you can actually uh, look look it up and find a way that if you're a fan of Frank and have never heard the music we made during that period of time, it was it was a, f- a really fun era and lots of lots of music that uh, really was ahead of its time. Yeah, some great stuff, folks, with uh, John Lennon, uh, Flo and Eddie, and also with Frank Zappa. We're speaking with the great Mark Volman tonight on the program. Now, you guys were also backup singers for T-Rex and Alice Cooper. Yeah, we did. We did. Uh, we uh, met uh, Alice about 1970. We started 
singing with Alice. Uh, and I say that we ended up doing a bunch of records, maybe four or five records with Alice, Flo and Eddie uh, doing all the background singing with T-Rex, mm-hmm. playing a gong, get it on. Uh, and we did five albums with Mark Bolin with uh, T-Rex. Um, and uh, uh, all through that period of time, uh, a lot of artists were hoping that they could, you know, utilize Howard and I to come in and do some singing. So we ended up singing with Sammy Hager. Uh, we ended up singing with the Ramones. We ended up singing with Bruce Springsteen. And uh, Hungry Heart uh, would be released as his first single in the United States and go to number one. Uh, and uh, that's Howard Nye singing all of the backgrounds on that record. Wow, I didn't know that. That is outstanding. That is wonderful, uh, wonderful news about that, Mark. And what take? What does it take to be a good background singer? I mean, you, you mentioned you've sung backgrounds on on so many guys' records. What is the secret of being a good background singer? Listening, ah. listening, listening to what they want to do because. This is a moment that uh, it's kind of hard to relate, but all of us were fans. I mean, we were fans of Bruce. We were fans of Joey Ramone. We were fans with all of the different people, and they had the same feeling. Those people would come into the sessions, and they were fans of, of ours. And so... Everybody was kind of being a groupie, you know. We were <laughs> yeah. making fun of the time uh, by being there. Everybody had, you know, some of those albums that we made. Uh, we did some music with Stephen Still, uh, Stills, um, um, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, uh, that whole group. We ended up singing on different projects with them as they did their individual projects. We did an album with uh, Stephen Stills uh, and with uh, Neil Young and uh, just, a, just a bunch of people. And you, you, you really need to be a good listener. You have to be aware of the history of music, and it helps a lot if you know what's taking place in a particular area of the country maybe the artist was from that you want to stage it like you would stage a movie. You would bring singers in like us to make the music sound the way the artist needs to be heard as as the as he was working on this particular project. So, yeah, I'd say it's really invaluable history. Know the history of what you're singing so you can stage it. You can make it feel like uh, it's uh, there's a lot coming out of 
the singers, and it, it isn't always just um, going to, you know, be a big hit record. Some of them don't become big hit records. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, Mark Mark Volman's with us tonight. Again, his book is called Happy Forever. It's uh, got some outstanding stories in it. And two names that I, I picked out from, from the book, Mark, Mickey Dolenz and Ray Manzarek. T- tell us how they fit into the Flo and Eddie scene. Well, um, Ray Manzarek, we've known Ray for a really long time, and, uh, and in the past, Ray did radio. We, we had our own radio show for uh, about two and a half years in, in New York. Isn't that something? We, well, maybe we took your job. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we did actually uh, Flo and Eddie um, radio show two to six every afternoon on WXRK in New York City, and uh, during that period of time, we not only sang with Ray Manzarek, uh, but we did all of his solo albums, and uh, uh, Ray was a very, very lovable guy, really smart, uh, and when you get right down to it, uh, Ray, Ray Manzarek uh, if you explore some of his solo records, they were mostly like, like a kind of a blues jazz type music, but we did uh, one project with him called The Whole Thing Started with Rock and Roll, but now it's out of control. <laughs> and that, that was, that was Ray Man's Eric's take on it. And Ray, Ray, we knew from his his brother had a band in uh, Southern California, um, and we ended up playing a lot of surfing music with his brother, and his brother's band was called Rick and the Ravens. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did uh, some stuff with them in that period of time. And you also mentioned... Mickey, Mickey, known Mickey and his family going all the way back to about the 1960s, uh, mid-1960s, early uh, 64, 65. Uh, and um, Mickey was a circus boy. I don't know if you remember. I'm not sure how old you are. Probably a little bit older than me. But I would say that... Uh, Mickey Dolan's sweet man played a lot of softball games in, for charity. Uh, the sixties had some good softball players and, uh, we, you know, guys from the Eagles who joined us on the weekends and things like that. But Mickey was a, very generous with his time. Uh, I wish he'd have been as generous with his money, but uh, <laughs> with his time, Mickey was one of the funniest guys. Just time would tell uh, that Mickey Dolan would be able to be where he is today. He's, his show is great to see, and if you've never seen 
Mickey, it's definitely worth uh, get, getting it and hearing it. The great Mickey Dolans, folks, that's true. Now, is there a band, Mark, that you wish you could have worked with? Oh, <laughs> that's a good that's a good question. Um, wow, that's, we we were so lucky to get to play with so many of those artists. Um, oh, I always wanted to do something with. Um, uh, Dang, uh, what's her name? Uh, the girl she won a Grammy for. Uh, she's a great songwriter. Um, Carol King. Well, um, no, no. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll remember it along the way, even if I have to call you and tell you. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll get back to it now. In the last few minutes we have, Mark, I have to ask you. We we're here on Long Island, and. How many years ago, 40, 30 years ago on Long Island, you had a big bar scene, lots of local bands, and you guys produced the Good Rats. Yes. Yeah, we we became friends uh, along the way. In fact, we played a few shows out at Belmont Park. I remember. Yeah, I have that on cassette somewhere at home. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we... uh, we uh, loved working for uh, the communities there. We used to go eat at Frank Steaks a lot. Oh yeah. Uh, we used to. That's twenty-two ounces of uh, of steak, uh, and it's a it's a wonderful way to spend an evening in uh, Long Island. Uh, <laughs> WLIR. Oh yeah. Was one, of, was one of the first radio stations flowing, Eddie. Uh, did uh, on the week every week we would do three or four nights uh, live at WLIR, and uh, that eventually opened us up to uh, join the staff uh, for 29 months when we did the uh, radio show of uh, K Rock mm-hmm. in uh, 92.3. K-Rock. Right. Yeah, those were the days, Mark. With, yeah, with, we used to tell people yeah. that we li- we lived there. We used to tell <laughs> people. When we were on the radio, we would, every week we would go on and we would uh, play pool with Ray Manzarek or whatever we were doing, we'd tie it to the city uh, uh, in Long Island, and it was one of the fun times for us, uh, we would have artists like uh, Eric Burden come on the show. Uh, Eric had uh, the Animals, the band The Animals. Right. And, uh, and uh, from Long Island came the fellas Gary Bonner and Alan Gordon who wrote oh. Happy Together. They wrote yeah. Happy Together. We used to play out at the boat, out at the marina, uh, and there was a club out there we used to play out in Long Island. And uh, it was really, really a fun time of our life. We always made it feel like that we really loved being in Long Island uh, and getting a chance to explore 
the music of that time. Well, there you go, folks. Mark Volman and, and Flo and Eddie, ties to Long Island. Also, if you want to look up on YouTube, look up Party in the Park with the Good Rats. You'll hear uh, Flo and Eddie with the Good Rats doing Eleanor, Happy Together. It's a tremendous show. Now, I want to let you folks know, too, aside from Mark's book, which is Happy Forever, a great read. Pick that up. Uh, next year, June 15th of 2024, uh, the Happy Together Tour stops on Long Island at Westbury. And uh, you can get tickets and come see those guys. I, I think you, you have uh, the association or the Vogues with you, Mark, and, and uh, it'll be a tremendous show. I, I want to thank you, Mark. Uh, it's been a, a pleasure and an honor having you with us tonight. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us back here on the island, and we wish you nothing but the best. Bill, let me just say, go ahead. I, appre- I appreciate you letting us come on and joining you. We've heard your show. We know who you are, and we're just really glad that uh, you made a ch- chance for us to get on the air for our fans. And uh, just tell, uh, I'll just tell all our cast and crew, Bill's got a great show, and. Uh, if you it gives you all the sports numbers you need to know, that's it. And yeah. uh, Bill, you take care of yourself. You we'll, too, Mark. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to you down the line. We'll have you back in June before you come play out here. Uh, that'd be that'd be great. Any 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 time. That anytime. is Mark Bowman, folks, from Flo and Eddie and the Turtles. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Dale Arnold and Mark Bowman. My engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. See you next on Sunday evening, December 10th. Till then, be safe, be well. Please have a very warm and happy Thanksgiving, folks. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.